A far-right challenge dooms the U.S. House Speaker. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Welcome to the AJC's Politically Georgia podcast. I'm Greg Bluestein. After a revolt in the U.S. House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy loses his gavel. On today's program, why McCarthy's ouster leaves Georgia leaders in flux. I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. Until a new speaker is elected, there's a lot of uncertainty about how much business the House can actually conduct. So we'll talk about what is going to happen as another government shutdown deadline looms not in the distant future. I'm Patricia Murphy. At least one defendant in the Fulton County election interference case has accepted a plea deal. What it means for the prosecution and the other defendants in the case. And I'm Bill Nygut. A coalition of civil rights groups and others say they're concerned that prospective jurors in the Trump-Rico case could face serious threats from Trump supporters. They're calling for increased protection once the trial gets underway. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Guys, it is really cool to be taping with most of you, not T, of course, in Washington, but most of you live in the studios of WABE together to see your smiling faces. Oh, Greg, that is so nice of you. <laughs> we also got to see Lisa Ram. We've gotten to meet uh, the rest of the team here at WABE, the multiple people it takes to get this thing on the air. So it's wonderful to be here in person. Personally, I cannot tell you how glad I am to be back again in a radio studio with all of you. It's really exciting. Oh, it's awesome. And Tia, I'm glad you didn't come down here for this because you've had your hands full in Washington. Yeah, it's been a crazy last few days um, and last night, just not even with the vote to where Speaker McCarthy was ousted, but catching up with Republicans after that closed door meeting where he told them he would not try to become Speaker again. It's been quite the ride. Well, there's so much to unpack. Let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey there, I'm Stephen Schumacher, president of Only in Cartersville, Bartow. Need a break from election season? Escape the hustle and bustle in Cartersville, Georgia, where you can start your day with a rejuvenating hike at Red Top Mountain State Park and wind down at Timberline Glamping's newest location at Pine Acres on Lake Alatoona. Looking for more fun by the water? Check out Terminus Wake Park or grab a kayak and paddle down the Etowah River. And don't forget to mark your calendars now for Barbecue and Bruce Fest in downtown Cartersville on April 20th. Unwind where relaxation meets adventure and create memories that can be made only in Cartersville, Bartow. When you prepare your Georgia income tax return, please consider adding a few dollars to Line 33 to support the Georgia Cancer Research Fund. Managed by Georgia Corps, these funds go to researchers hard at work at Georgia's research institutions and medical schools, finding new ways to fight cancer. They're developing new treatments and new tools for diagnosis, all to save lives. It's easy to do. Just look for Line 33. More information is available at georgiacancerinfo.org. Tia, there was unprecedented chaos and drama in the House as a small group of hardline Republicans broke with the rest of their party to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his leadership position. Now the the House moves forward without a leader. What can you tell us about what happened and what is next? So, well, one of the things that I think is notable that we need to note is that it did not have to happen on Tuesday. When Representative Matt Gates on Monday filed his effort to remove McCarthy as speaker, it's called a motion to vacate. 
they had two days um, to bring it back to the floor, which means they could have stalled it out until Wednesday to maybe build more time, to build a coalition, maybe see if there's a way to get some Democrats on board. But instead, McCarthy, you know, basically he literally put on X, bring it on. And so on Tuesday, initially they tried to table um, Gates's motion. That was like a procedural vote, but it allowed um, everyone to gauge how much support Gates had. And it became clear at that time that unless there were Democrats willing to bail McCarthy out, Gates had enough votes. And once again, instead of waiting, they went straight to the motion to vacate. So it happened relatively quickly. Um, but the stunner Tuesday was when McCarthy told Republicans in a closed door meeting um, around 645 that he would not seek the speakership again. You know, there was talk about, well, mm -hmm. you know, his supporters could just turn around and renominate him again uh, and try the rounds of voting like we did in January. And he said, nope, he wasn't going to do it. Then he had this kind of last hurrah swans, swan song press conference that I think we all watched with kind of amazement because he was <laughs> it was so wide ranging and, and kind of wild. Um, and that was just the, the cap of a wild day. Tia, every Republican in the Georgia House delegation voted to uh, to support Speaker McCarthy keeping his gavel. Every Democrat voted to oust him. Are you surprised by any of the last minute decisions by uh, particularly our Republican delegation? I wasn't surprised. The wild card, I think, was um, Representative Andrew Clyde. And but he let us know kind of early on Tuesday that he was supporting McCarthy. He felt that particularly after the government shutdown fight, which seems like ages ago, but was just Saturday, he felt like McCarthy addressed his concerns, gave them a calendar for putting all these appropriations bills on the floor during the month of October, canceled the recess. And so, you know, um, though Clyde had been among the people who had been critical of McCarthy, didn't support him becoming speaker in January, um, but Clyde said, you know, I felt that we were going in a positive direction, so I'm with McCarthy. Um, and he was really the, the one member of the delegation that we thought possibly could join Gates. So once Clyde made his um, made it clear that he wasn't going to support the motion to vacate, our delegation, again, just broke along those clean party lines. Republicans supported McCarthy. Democrats would, there was never much of a question about mm -hmm. Democrats. He never tried to get their support, and therefore he didn't get it. So, Tia, when he has said, he said it last week, and as you said, he said it on Tuesday, basically, bring it on. If you want to file a motion to vacate, file a motion to vacate. But it was very clear when he said that, now looking in, looking back on it, he had not whipped this vote yet. He did not know that he would survive this and anybody else who we've seen as speaker will never bring anything to the floor unless they know the outcome of the vote and he just seemed to be kind of throwing this against the wall what was going on there is that something it seems like that's sort of the way he's been running this house 
also, he's lost a lot of surprise votes. Um, but did he think that Democrats might kind of throw him a life vest? Or I cannot really understand why he would do what he did when he did it. Yeah, you make a great point, And it doesn't really seem like he had much of a plan, to be honest. Like, And like you said, this is just the late, latest example of McCarthy bringing things to the floor and then being embarrassed when he couldn't get the vote the way he wanted it to go. There's been appropriations bills that were blocked. Of course, again, it took 15 rounds for him to become speaker. And you would think he would have, you know, tried to shore up more support beforehand. Um, same for this motion to vacate. He knew Gates has been threatening the motion to vacate for weeks. Um, and he, he knew that there was this was going to happen. Again, to me, what a lot of people are asking is why didn't he try to appease not all Democrats, but just enough to um, offset the hardliners that were going to op oppose him. But instead, he almost antagonized Democrats in the last few days. So even there were some who might have voted present um, or otherwise might have helped McCarthy. Um, they hadn't, not only did they not have incentive to help him, but he kind of made it so they were willing to help tank him. They they said they couldn't trust him mm -hmm. and they wanted to help remove him as speaker. Bill, they were more than happy to vote against him because, look, I mean, from the Democratic perspective, why would they want to help Kevin McCarthy? Called them socialists. He opened an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden that even rank-and-file Republicans said was foolhardy. Yeah, I, I think that's really uh, uh, exactly right. And we do know, as, as Tia really has suggested, he never did try to reach out over the weekend to Democrats to find some way to appease them and win some votes from them. But if you don't mind, I'd like to reframe, reframe this just a little bit. I mean, we've, we've all, much of the country, watched this drama unfold the last few days, especially the voting yesterday. And it's natural that we come away from it saying, oh, this was a huge defeat for Kevin McCarthy. But I'd like to suggest that with the speaker's chair vacated, and no clear signal as to who's going to take McCarthy's place, this is a loss for the American people. The U.S. House, Congress in general, can conduct no significant business as long as there is not a speaker in place. And that, in the long run, is a much bigger loss for all of us as American citizens than it is for one guy, Kevin McCarthy. And the other thing I would add to that is um, I, I did think it was interesting that in his news conference yesterday, last night, um, I thought McCarthy showed no sense of self-reflection. I don't want to kick a guy when he's down, but he didn't seem to have any sense of, of looking at himself and how he may have played a role himself in his ultimate defeat. He blamed Democrats, although he never reached out to them. At one point, he blamed uh, President Biden, of course, he blamed the renegades, the eight people who voted against him. But I was really struck by a man who seemed to have no ability to look at himself. Maybe that's not the place you do it. But nevertheless, it would have been helpful to me if he'd said, I think I made some mistakes, too. Yeah, T, I don't know about you, but when I heard the words yesterday that the office of the speaker is hereby declared vacant, I got chills. 
Yeah, it was that was definitely so interesting to see that happen in person. I want to go back to some of the things Bill said as well. I agree, Bill. There was a lot of blaming, a lot of accusations, a lot of <clears throat> using, you know, at the time he had the attention of a room full of reporters and, you know, he knew he was going to make a lot of sound bites and he kind of blamed Democrats. He blamed Matt Gates. He talked about Nancy Mace and, you know, all of that kind of kept coming back to, like you said, he never really said, well, this is what I could have done better other than, than like self-deprecating jokes. Like I shouldn't have supported those people in their primaries or I shouldn't have changed the, um, the rules. But I will also say where you talk about what will um, Congress be able to do in this interim, this is uncharted territory. We have no idea. So, you know, there are some people who are saying the the interim leader, the speaker pro tem, is not empowered to do anything but conduct a new speaker election. But there are other people who are interpreting it to say he basically can do this because this has never happened before. It's basically there's no precedent for what an interim speaker can or can't do in this scenario. And that uh, Representative Patrick McHenry, who is the interim, can kind of keep going as long as Republicans allow him. So, like, if, if Republicans allow him to let legislation come to the floor, well, apparently that's something that mm -hmm. an interim speaker can do. So if, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask a question. And Greg, I would love to hear your take on it first, because you were up in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district and filed a piece on it the other day. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, we all know, hitched her wagon to Kevin McCarthy's star. And it, it worked. I mean, we all acknowledge the fact that by doing that, it was a very savvy move. She suddenly became an important player in the U.S. House, perhaps one of the single most important. She supported McCarthy all the way through uh, even uh, though uh, uh, some of those far-right Republicans were angry at her for doing that. what Where does she head next? I'd love to hear you all talk about that. Yeah, well, first of all, she's in the safest district she can possibly be, and it seems in Georgia her opponent spent more than $17 million uh, last year trying to defeat her, and yet she still won by about 30-plus points. So, um, And there's signs now that if a federal judge orders state lawmakers to redraw the political maps that her district might even become even more conservative. So her political fate is is probably very strong, and she's even talked about running for U.S. Senate or statewide office in 2026. But in terms of her role in that U.S. House, where she was a pariah just a few years ago and turned into a power broker by her alliance with Kevin McCarthy, that kind of changes everything. Kevin McCarthy, Patricia noted, told allies that they're Bond was ironclad. Yeah. You know, he famously talked about how how close the two of them were. And now, as you wrote in the AJC's Morning Jolt this morning, she might have been the big one of the biggest losers of what happened yesterday. I think that's absolutely the case because, yeah, McCarthy had said, I will never let Marjorie down. I will never let anything happen to her. That is very difficult to get that kind of a commitment from a House speaker, particularly as a sophomore lawmaker. And he gave her very prominent committee assignments. He took Ukraine funding out of the defense appropriations bill um, because she was demanding it. So he really um, catered to her in a lot of ways. She's not 
going to get that more than likely from whoever is speaker next. Um, so uh, she managed to sort of jump the line by by uh, ingratiating herself and supporting Kevin McCarthy for speaker. But she didn't always support him for speaker. She um, she did support him as speaker, but she took a walk on a lot of these votes that he needed her support on. And so um, I will be interested to see how their relationship even goes on from here. Um, but I would say, Bill, when you say that this is a loss for the American people, I think there are some uh, people on the right side um, who don't mind the chaos. Mm-hmm. They don't want McCarthy in charge. They don't want Congress passing bills. Um, if they fail to pass appropriations bills, there will be automatic spending cuts across the board in January. And so there is a level of this that is not all bad for in, in all people's <clears throat> opinions. I don't share that opinion, um, but I think it is something that uh, a handful of people wanted to see happen and um, is now happening now. They, they clearly didn't look two steps down the road. They're, they're just sort of working on a short-term process here. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to, I think I'm uh, going to be a little bit contrarian and say that I think that because McCarthy set Marjorie Taylor Greene up for success once he became speaker, giving her these prompt, these uh, plum committee assignments and, you know, validating her in a way, uh, mains, making her appear more mainstream, that even though he's gone, I think at this point she's good. At this point, she's in lockstep with most House Republicans right now. She didn't support Gates's effort to remove McCarthy. So right now, Gates and the seven others are kind of the personas non grata within the Republican conference. I don't think any speaker, they're gonna have their hands full. They're not gonna be worried about whether Marjorie Taylor Greene deserves to be on oversight at this point. She's there, they're not gonna get rid of her and it'll be harder to take her off committees in the future. Once you know, once a member is on a committee, they're usually there until they mess it up. So as long as she doesn't give them new ammo, I think she'll be fine for now just because there are bigger fish to fry as far as it comes to problematic members of the House Republican Conference, especially because that majority is so thin. Any future speaker needs Marjorie Taylor Greene. Out of chaos sometimes comes opportunity. I'm really closely watching Congressman Drew Ferguson out of West Georgia. He was the chief deputy whip for a couple terms. He's ambitious. He's well-liked. He has long had aspirations of moving up the ranks. Uh, I'm told that he could be considering running for whip. Could this be his shot at a new leadership post right now? I think it could. But if we go back when Drew Ferguson ran for whip, I went back and pulled up um, the uh, the coverage we had in the jolt from then. And he there were three people running for whip. He was in third place, but there was just one vote separating him from the second place person. So, you know, I will say that he hasn't been as much of the conversation, you know, the speculation over the last 24 hours as to, you know, will Emmer move up? Will Scalise move up? And that leave, again, this opening at whip that perhaps Drew Ferguson could run for, possibly, but his name really isn't in the mix the way There are other names already bubbling up. But again, this may not be resolved quickly. Yes, uh, 
interim uh, speaker Patrick McHenry said that the speaker vote will be Wednesday. That's what he said Tuesday. Things change. Mm -hmm. If they can't get a majority vote and they meet behind closed doors, I could see scenarios where there is not a speaker vote on Wednesday because House Republicans want to come out of this looking unified. They know as much as they may go on um, TV and blame Democrats, they know this is an embarrassment for them. They know they're being called a rudderless party right now. They want to create some unity. I don't think they want another contentious multiple rounds of speaker votes that Democrats are just going to use to take advantage of them and, and say that they're in chaos. And we know that Drew Ferguson is closely tied with Steve Scalise, who is potentially a top contender for that speaker's gavel. Patricia, before we take a break, I can't help but notice both of us were at the governor's mansion yesterday as this was unfolding. You know, it wasn't meant to kind of be a contrast with Washington, but it was unavoidable. You had generations, generations of mainstream conservatives touting Georgia's economy under GOP leadership and the steps of the governor's mansion, even as Washington Republicans were descending into chaos up at Capitol Hill. It was crazy. It was happening absolutely simultaneously. The House Republican caucus imploding over um, a very tiny group of their caucus wanting it to happen. And then in Georgia, there are members of the far right who are part of these caucuses, but they have not been able to take a real shot at leadership. And it all comes down to Governor Kemp. Um, he is the most powerful person in this state, not Donald Trump. You can't say the same thing about Congress. It feels like Donald Trump is really making decisions up there for a number of members and their leaders. And um, Kemp has already broken free of Trump. He kind of can use the Trump um, energy when he wants to and needs to, but he has so uh, deftly created his own brand. Um, he's not beholden to Donald Trump or his supporters or anybody like Colton Moore, who has tried to push him to do something he didn't want to do. So yes, it was just absolutely serene at the governor's mansion. And it was just could not have been more different than the absolute chaos that we saw 600 miles away. And you're right. Those ultra conservatives in Georgia have been sidelined by Republican leaders. Even a couple of years ago when there was a far right basically coup attempt against then House Speaker David Ralston. I think they got 10 votes. Yeah, Ralston just wasn't having it. He's yeah. like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, just ahead, then there were 18. One of the defendants in the Fulton County election interference case has accepted a deal to plead guilty, and more could follow. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. With all the news and chaos surrounding the Donald Trump indictment, it's going to be really hard to keep up. So the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with our new Trump indictment newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That is all one word, 
AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And don't forget to tune into the Breakdown podcast hosted by our AJC colleagues, Bill Rankin, Tamar Hallerman, for all the latest on the legal developments in the trial against Donald Trump. The AJC's Tamar Hallerman is reporting that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is floating plea deals to a number of lower-level defendants in the sprawling election interference case she brought a few weeks ago. She's already cut the first deal with Scott Hall. He was one of the Trump allies who breached sensitive voter information from Dominion voting machines down in Coffee County. Hall pleaded guilty to five misdemeanor counts of intentionally interfering with official election duties and seems willing to cooperate with prosecutors. Other defendants could soon accept deals and join Hall in testifying against higher-level defendants. Bill, there's plenty of reason why this could happen. Uh starting with the enormous cost of litigation. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, And not only the cost of litigation, but the fear among some of these defendants who are considered lower level defendants that they could end up in prison uh, for uh, cooperating with the efforts to overturn the results of the election. Tamar reported that there's been offers, she believes, extended to any number of the lower level defendants. Scott Hall fits that category to the extent that he was involved in the Coffee County election breach. He was down there. I think he was the one who chartered the airplane that, that flew Sidney Powell and others down to Coffee County where they accessed uh, voter machines to get out sensitive information, presumably looking for proof that the Dominion voting machines had changed votes, which was an unusual thing to do in Coffee County given that Coffee County voted overwhelmingly uh, for Donald Trump. But clearly, in the long run, um, if in fact the the um, lower level defendants are being offered the deals, as as Tamar suggests, the real uh, targets of this, I assume, are Donald Trump, Rudolph Giuliani, John Eastman. I mean, those three for sure, and maybe a couple of Mark others. Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows, Patricia. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously any information that they gather from these lower level defendants will be used in those cases because I cannot imagine Donald Trump um, taking a plea deal. Um, Although along with the cost of litigation, there is just the very real situation that once all of these defendants turn themselves in at Fulton County Jail, that is a very clarifying, scary experience for people to find themselves checking in, getting fingerprinted, getting mugshots, um, and uh, knowing that they could return to that jail um, someday as an inmate. That is terrifying for people, frankly. And so uh, I have uh, I have known people who have pled guilty to, fel- to misdemeanors after being charged with felonies because they just didn't want to go to jail. They didn't want to be away from their family. They didn't even think they had done anything wrong but they didn't want to take that chance. So I think there's a lot going on for these defendants and weighing how exactly to move forward. Yeah, Greg, we should point out that Scott Hall pleaded guilty to five misdemeanors. He's been sentenced to probation, no prison time uh, whatsoever. And of course, one of the things that Tamar points out in her article is it's the first uh, uh, person to take the deal who's going to get the best deal and uh, and maybe the second person gets an okay deal. There, there ought to be a rush now among some of those lower-level defendants because the further you get away from being early in that process, the less likely it is you are to be getting as good a deal as the early uh, plea, mm-hmm. plea arrangements uh, have proven for some of those people like Scott Hall. Yeah, it could also be a template 
um, you know, other defendants could say they want at least a semblance of what Scott Hall got. One of the things I was told by a Scott Hall ally is what he wanted. He's a bail bondsman. He wants to keep mm-hmm. on being a bail bondsman. And they believe that under the plea deal he took, he can continue to work as long as he serves out his sentence. But you know, there are a lot of legal experts that question finding Willis' strategy. But you have to go back to the Atlanta Public School cheating mm-hmm. um, uh, trial that she, the, the cases she brought or she helped bring against public school administrators at APS and others. Um, you know, she brought a number of cases in that trial, a number of indictments in that trial as well. And some of the low-level defendants ended up flipping. They ended up striking plea deals. You know, one thing that I thought was just wild about this particular um, agreement that Scott Hall struck, he'll need to write a letter of apology to Georgia voters. And I think that that will be circulated far and wide. And so in an attempt to convert these um, plea deals to actually potentially changing public opinion, um, though a letter like that um, will be really fascinating to read. Um, I think also the defendants will need to offer information that is actionable for the defense in order to, for the prosecution rather, in order to um, be an attractive option for prosecutors to to take a plea deal and, or offer them a plea deal as well. So we'll see what happens. Tia, the first phase of this trial is right around the corner. October 23rd, jury selection begins for two of the defendants who sought speedy trials, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesborough. We're going to start seeing a preview uh, of what prosecutors' cases are very soon. And we expect jury trial. The judge said it, the, the jury selection part could only take two weeks. That remains to be seen. <laughs> it's taken months in in, in the uh, YSL trial, uh, and a single juror has not yet even been seated. Uh, but this will be a big test for how the case will look going forward. Yeah, I think so. And I think, again, it's not just going to be a test for, like, the prosecution and a test to see what the defendants and their attorneys use to try to explain their actions, but it'll be a test for just the unprecedented nature of, you know, having cameras in the courtroom for a Trump election interference trial, because no, Trump himself won't be on trial. But, you know, this is a, this will be a proxy for that Trump trial. So just, just to be interesting to see Um, the media attention, the coverage, and like you said, just the mechanics of how this is all going to work. But I'm kind of with you, Greg. I don't, I still think that date is ambitious for a lot of (laughs) reasons. So can the prosecutors in the court actually get to trial by that date? Like the fact that we're, what, three weeks away? What was interesting, Patricia, was just a few days ago when Donald Trump's attorneys sent notice that they would not try to remove the trial to federal court. They also kind of gave a vote of confidence for Judge McAfee, uh, the the judge who's been on the bench for less than a year, was appointed by Governor Brian Kemp um, last year to serve on the Fulton County Superior Court. They said, you know, they they have essentially they believe that he'll do do a good job handling this case, uh, even if it means a slightly less favorable jury pool for Trump. And of course, the the advent, and we don't know if he likes this or doesn't, I think he sort of does like it, but the advent of the possibility that there will be cameras televising every moment of this trial. Yes, absolutely. I think also they preferred uh, Judge McAfee over the concept of potentially having Judge Jones, um, who had been uh, appointed by President Obama, I believe, um, appointed uh, 
the, the federal judge in this case. So uh, compared uh, neck and neck, I think they definitely would have do prefer McAfee. Um, although I think sometimes we need to give these judges um, the benefit, uh, not of the doubt, but just assume that they're going to be making these decisions based on the facts in front of them. Um, I think pundits can often uh, take a, the partisan appointment of a judge a little too far when they're sort of presupposing the outcome of a trial. But I think that McAfee, especially because it has been broadcast um, in uh, uh, in small bits, um, has really equipped himself extremely well. Um, I think there's broad support for him publicly among both Democrats and Republicans that we talk to. And so Donald Trump's attorneys are uh, just joining the crowd in terms of people who think he's the judge. Uh, judge McAfee has been doing a really good job. What a breath of fresh air. Trump <laughs> lawyers saying, we think this judge is going to do a good and fair job. Hardly the way in which Donald Trump has talked about judges and prosecutors throughout his legal uh, problems. Um, but I want to go back for a minute to the upcoming early trial, presumably, of uh, Chesborough and uh, Sidney Powell. I, I recognize they're somewhat higher on the food chain in terms of people who uh, the prosecutors would like to um, uh, really go after, especially Chesborough, I think, uh, given he was involved in the fake elector scheme. But I wonder if, in fact, if you're Fonnie Willis, do you want to do everything you possibly can to pressure those two into accepting guilty pleas because the minute you open that trial, you're going to start giving away uh, parts of your strategy uh, to the attorneys who will represent Donald Trump, Rudolph Giuliani, uh, Mark Meadows a little bit later. If there's any way you could get them to plead guilty, I would think that's something you'd really want to try to do to avoid that trial. Yeah, you know, this is why Scott Hall's flip is such an important deal. Because, yes, he was involved in Coffee County, but he was also, at least prosecutors say he also kind of presented himself as an agent of the Donald Trump campaign as he called around and and, and as there was efforts underway to pressure um, election officials in Georgia and beyond to take steps to undermine Joe Biden's victory in Georgia and in other states where it was a very close election. So, Patricia, I mean, his testimony could become key in that ongoing trial. And you have to, or that upcoming trial, I should say, and you have to believe, you have to think at least that the Chesbro and Sidney Powell's attorneys are now you know, furiously scrambling. What is he going to say? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, they saw, they, they saw the news. Uh, there has been a plea deal and then they found out who it was and they must have been like, oh my goodness gracious. Now yeah. we need to really know what he knows. And I'm sure that they're preparing accordingly. Um, I think it's also really important to remember that Donald Trump has multiple um, uh, judicial proceedings going on in multiple different jurisdictions. And even as this news was coming out or just before the news came out that they had decided um, to forgo pushing this to federal court, he is uh, currently in state court in New York defending his businesses. Uh, there is also going to be the federal matter out of Washington, D.C. Um, on two separate issues. And so um, he has to really be strategic right now, um, if only for how he's spending his money. I mean, there is a lot of money for him to spend um, on these trials, but not an infinite amount. So doing anything that might otherwise seem like a delay tactic or something that could be seen as a bit frivolous, he just has to start really be making ruthless decisions about his time and strategy. And TF, there's been one through line with all these trials, state, federal, Georgia, New York, is that Donald Trump has said, 
this is he is the victim of a politicized process uh, prosecution and that there's really been no line between his campaign and his legal defense. Yeah, that's not only is that the case, but as a result, he's facing gag orders and, you know, um, judges are expressing concern about some of the things he said and trying to create a line between his rights to free speech and his rights to wage his campaign to become president again versus trying to protect not only the integrity of all these cases, but protect the safety of the people involved, whether it be uh, the judges, their um, their employees, the prosecutors and witnesses or potential witnesses. So, you know, we saw in the Fulton County case where the terms of his bond agreement um, created some limitations on, you know, he can't disparage people involved in the case. Just, re- just now, um, yesterday, in the case out of New York, the judge issued a gag order because of some things that Trump was saying online about people involved in the case. So, but again, he's running for president. They can't tie his hands completely. And as you said, Greg, his campaign for president, there's no, there's really not a line that's in Trump's mind that separates the the, the cases from the campaign. Yeah, and he says it's a First Amendment issue. He says it's a free speech issue. And look, we even saw in the special grand jury report that was released uh, a few weeks ago under order by Judge Robert McBurney, um, we even saw at least one of those special grand jurors. The, these are the grand jurors that investigated Trump for you know, more than eight months. Um, we even saw one of them say, hey, you know, I, I disagree with bringing charges, Bill, against Senators Leffler and Purdue, because what they were saying was just political banter in that juror's mind. Yeah, but they drew a line and did see a difference between their behavior and Donald Trump yeah. and Mark Meadows and Giuliani and the others, who they said were not just, you know, talking politics. They were doing their best to undermine the results of the way voters cast their ballots in that presidential election. Well, still to come, a number of civil rights organizations are warning that those prospective jurors in the Trump-Fulton County election case will need stepped-up protection from possible threats. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on WABE. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We are not only the host of Politically Georgia, but we're also some of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every single morning, bright and early. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast and get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. So you always know what's really going on. The judge in Donald Trump's ongoing New York civil case is strongly warned 
Donald Trump that he will not tolerate any verbal assaults on members of the court staff and on the judge himself. That caution will most likely add fuel to the various groups that have called on Fonnie Willis to step up security for the eventual members of the Trump trial here in Georgia. Bill, the concern, of course, is that Trump's harsh words could lead others to take more lethal action against the targets of Donald Trump's rage. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that um, over a number of years now. I I suppose uh, obvious, the best example, obviously, is the insurrection, the riot at the United States Capitol, which um, people would suggest Donald Trump actually inspired. Um, and there are individual cases as well. We watched Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, two Fulton County poll workers, who went through, as we know, horrific experiences with people coming after them. Um, and they, they felt as if they couldn't go to the grocery store because they were afraid for their lives. In in the New York case, um, what's really fascinating about this is, of course, this is the civil case where Trump is being uh, tried for uh, business practices that were illegal, unethical, and more. He, he inflated, according to the, um, the judge himself in the case, who's already ruled on one aspect of it, inc- he um, inflated the uh, price of many of his holdings for advantages it gave him. And what, one of the things that, so, so he's attacked the judge in that case a couple of times. What's fascinating is, I think this happened while he was actually in court. He saw a tweet from uh, someone who said, why is Judge Gorin's principal law clerk, Allison R. Greenfield, palling around with Chuck Schumer? And, and Trump retweeted that with this comment, Schumer's girlfriend, Allison Greenfield, is running this case against me. How disgraceful. This case should be dismissed immediately. Well, of course, first of all, there's no indication that there's any relationship. Yeah. This was at a public um, gathering where she may have posed for a photograph um, with Schumer. But the judge was really furious and said, you can't do this. Leave my staff alone. He didn't include himself, but clearly the implication was there. Tia, I'm glad Bill brought that up because this is not a hypothetical scenario. I mean, we we saw how two Fulton County election staffers, Ruby Freeman, Shea Moss, had their lives literally turned upside down by the folks who believed in these election fraud lies from Trump and his supporters, members of the special grand jury that indicted uh, Donald Trump, actually the regular grand jury that indicted Donald Trump, were harassed after their names were disclosed publicly on social media sites. And District Attorney Fonnie Willis has said she and her family members have been threatened. That's just what we know. We, we There's a lot we probably don't know, but the security uh, th- th- of this upcoming trial, you know, the, the situation surrounding it, very tense. Right. And that's something, you know, we kind of alluded to it in the previous segment, how, you know, Donald Trump does have rights to say, you know, to defend himself and to speak about his case and, and, and other people in his orbit the same way. But where is that line? And we've seen repeatedly that when Trump says things, his it has impact and it's picked up by the echo chamber. And then it has led to people that have been called out by Trump or his allies saying that there has been not just 
just threats, not just words, but they have at times felt that there was actual risk, actual, you know, that there was real, real threat, real Mm -hmm. challenges to their safety. Um, Whether you're talking about Ruby Freeman or Shea Moss saying people showing up to their home or remember, I think it was, I don't, I think it was Gabriel Sterling that, you know, he kind of, during all the efforts to overturn the election, he just kind of got mad about it. And he had this really passionate speech where he was like, someone's going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it, it is such a troubling thing, again, not to try to take sides on who's right, who's wrong, as far as like Donald Trump, if he he says he's innocent, he says that these things are being used to, you know, keep him from becoming president. And he has a right to kind of have his own thoughts about his case. But it just is so concerning that this political rhetoric becomes dangerous. And, you know, at the most extreme level, we end up with January 6th. Yeah, Patricia, that that speech that Tia just invoked that Gabe Sterling speech, a Republican, uh, the uh, one of the highest ranking state elections officials in Georgia, a deputy to Brad Raffensperger. He warned people are going to get hurt if this if these lies of these election fraud conspiracy fantasy theories keep on being spread. You spent a lot of time back then with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger as well. You went to his house. You talked to his wife about the personal toll that these these lies were taking on their family. Yeah, the Raffensperger at that. Raffensburgers at that point were really living under siege. I was given his home address, but only over the telephone. They didn't want to put it in writing. They were so concerned about his physical safety. And um, when I went out uh, to drive out to his home, there were caravans of Trump supporters and pickup trucks with flags. They knew that his neighborhood, they didn't know which house he lived in, and they were driving around looking for him and yelling his name and yelling his wife's name. So um, it is intensely frightening um, for people involved in these cases. And I would say um, it is uh, not just the court uh, employees, um, the judges, of course, uh, the uh, prosecutors. Also, there's concern for the jurors um, if their names or uh, images are leaked or disseminated in any way, um, that is going to be a real concern. I've heard about that here in Fulton County as well. So, um, And you have a defendant whose um, his defense is happening in the court of public opinion, and he knows that. And so he will be making his case on social media at any opportunity. We, we do know, of course, that um, once a jury is impaneled and the Trump trial begins— that and even if there are cameras in the courtroom, which we assume will happen, we do know that the jurors will not be seen. That that's one yep. thing that there will be a rule that we cannot uh, see them. So that protects them to some extent. I'm a little unclear, and maybe one of you knows what the statutes are in Georgia about eventually releasing the names of jurors in a given criminal case. We did. Ha- it wasn't that what happened with the grand jury that it was there there is a requirement that the names be made public yeah there's case law that goes back yeah. about a century requiring yeah. that those names be disclosed and that's why we had the the grand jury's yes. names um, i'm not sure how it works if it, right. there's a difference between a grand a jury trial and a jury, jury. Yeah, yeah i'm not sure exactly there but we know that those names have leaked out before look there's already standing rules in courts that media cannot photograph. They cannot name jurors. Those jurors should be identified by number. Uh, the judge in this case, 
took an additional step to, to add a little bit more safeguards. We know there's also security safeguards being put in place that we do not know about, that we shouldn't know about as members of the public, um, but that are, you know, that are, that are under high, high security. Um, but look, still, this coalition of groups is sounding the alarm. And these were dozens and dozens of well-known advocacy organizations, Bill, saying extra steps should yeah. be taken. They didn't say specifically what, but they're very worried about the safety of these jurors. So if you don't mind, let me take a step back and raise what I think is kind of an existential question. I recognize that Donald Trump's supporters, um, and they are legion, there are polls that show him neck and neck with Joe Biden uh, in, in next year's election, I recognize they love the way that he is on the attack, that he goes after people, that he's fierce in defending himself. But I, all of a sudden the other day, it occurred to me, what's it like? to live with that kind of continual rage, always angry, always uh, feeling that you have to attack. It, it strikes me. For Donald Trump? Yes. Oh, I think it feeds his soul. I really do. That's his, that's his mojo. Are you crazy? I, but <laughs> no, that, that's my point, I, though. What kind of individual well, wants yeah. to live always furious about something well, i think there's been a lot of commentary about the sources of his uh of his rage and and a lot of that i think is also in some cases for show some of it's very real some of it may have to do with his childhood we don't really know um but i think a lot of the trump supporters don't like the way he is well, it's and they they tell us I, God, I wish he would get off of social media um i wish he would not say everything he said they like some of the stuff but they don't like all of it but they're not going to vote for Joe Biden. You know, that's all they know. Now, there is this there is a group in the middle. There are Republicans who we talked to yesterday who are hardcore Republicans not voting for Donald Trump because they cannot stand the violence and rhetoric and rage. And when she says we talked to them yesterday, we talked to them on the lawn of the governor's mansion. <laughs> we we're talking, not the governor, of course, but died in the wool Republicans. Governor Kemp has already said he would back yeah. Donald Trump if he wins the nomination. These but are not right. voters up for grabs. Yeah, you know? they're, yeah. and the, that's the block of voters, Tia. That's the block of voters that decided the 2020 election, the 2021 runoff, the 2022 Senate race in Georgia, at least, right? Those that influential, small but but significant block of of middle of the road voters, independents, moderates, whatever, um, former Republicans, moderate Democrats, who might have backed Republicans in the past in Georgia and cannot stomach either backing Trump or his fiercest allies. And I think to me, I've always said I might be wrong, but I've always said that's the group that will also decide the 2024 election. Yeah, I think you're right, and that's why, quite frankly, on in both parties, there is concern about their front runners. You know, a lot of people said that, well, we know that there's a lot of unreadiness with Trump, which is why there are so many Republican, kind of mainstream Republicans who want to see a different nominee. Your Tim Scotts, your Nikki Haley's. At one point, they thought Ron DeSantis, but I think a lot of people at this point feel like Ron DeSantis might be just as problematic as um, a Donald Trump. But they're looking for an alternative that they think is still conservative, but not as troublesome in their rhetoric as what we've seen from Donald Trump. But at the same point, they believe that the Democratic alternative is weak. You know, Joe Biden has his own flaws or, you know, 
downsides, mm-hmm. if you will, particularly his age and um, and not just his age. I want to always make that clear. If Joe Biden came across just as vibrant as Nancy Pelosi, you would not see as many concerns about True. his age. Um, but he, at the end of the day, he doesn't, and that's just the honest um, the honesty about how he comes across. Um, as someone who is slowed by age. And so neither, both front runners have people concerned. And so for those people in the middle that, again, especially in a state like Georgia, will likely decide what is expected to be a narrow contest, will they say, you know, I'm more concerned about a Joe Biden second term, I'm more concerned about a potential Kamala Harris ascending to be VP, um, not necessarily because something happened to Joe Biden, but if he decides he can't complete or doesn't want to complete his term versus am I more concerned about a second term of Donald Trump and the rhetoric and the, and the quite frankly, mm-hmm. loose cannon nature of his tenure? Yeah, no, that's what's so interesting, Patricia, about what's happening in, in Georgia and really throughout the nation, there are a significant number of Democrats who have concerns about Joe Biden. Leaders, though, seem uniformly behind him. I can't find a high-ranking Democratic official who go even, frankly, even off the record, let alone on the record, um, saying that they don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee. I'm sure there's some out there, but very few of them have at least been willing to tell me that. I know you've talked to tons. But then on the other side of the aisle, um, there are a number of Republicans who are holding their fire, right? They're, as Governor Kemp said, keeping their powder dry, not willing to endorse anyone, particularly Donald Trump, at this stage of the game, even though polls show he has an overwhelming majority of support in, among likely Republican primary voters. Yeah, it's really the completely inverse dynamic from Democrats who you have Democratic voters saying, oh my gosh, here we go again. I don't know about Joe Biden. I'm concerned. you know. And then, as you said, leaders are like, he is our guy. Just get on board. On the other side, um, you know, the donors, uh, the Glenn Youngkin fans of the world, the Brian Kemp fans of the world, these sort of fantasy football, uh, what if these guys were the nominees? Um, they uh, they want to see somebody besides Donald Trump. But you go to a Republican event and the energy is for Trump. The energy is on the Trump side. And so the voter, the Republican voters are not searching for an alternative but to any important extent. Um, Donald Trump really has the primary locked up among the base very, very clearly. And you all have just described why so many voters out there in Georgia and beyond are looking at this election and just taking a deep sigh and saying, oh my gosh, this is really what we're faced with for next November. And we've also described why we think both Joe Biden and Donald Trump, or whoever the Republican nominee is, will be camped out in Georgia yeah. <laughs> in the run-up to the March 12th primary after Super Tuesday, and then far beyond that in the run-up to the November general election. Well, coming up on Friday's episode, we'll answer your questions from the Politically Georgia call-in hotline. You can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show. Producer Shaney B. and his legion of interns, they've come over from the AJC offices to WABE's beautiful studio. They'll be standing by. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We can't wait to hear from you. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution here at WABE. Follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution here on WABE Atlanta. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.